Joining us now from somewhere near Heartland, Minnesota, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. Hey, good morning, Al. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, I went for my morning walk just to see what went on during the night, and it was uh, three degrees, so <laughs> and it, it, it felt like three degrees, too. Uh, last night, I rang bells for the Salvation Army, and it was, uh, there were two guys that came in with shorts, of course, because there's always guys with shorts. I asked one guy, I said, do you wear shorts every day of the year? And he said, you know, he said, I try real hard, but I fall short. There's a couple of days every year where I just can't take it. So, well, you know, it's pretty it's, common at, at college, but I just think it's because they're young and don't know any better. But maybe it's just older guys, too, and guys in general. Yeah, there's uh, one fellow that comes in when I'm ringing around Christmas every year, and he's very generous, <laughs> and he wears flip-flops, shorts, and then like a parka, a furred parka. And he says he wears uh, wears shorts outside every day of the year. So he um, oh that's, it. that's his goal each year, to prove to the world that he is a uh, true Minnesotan. So <laughs> I told him he should try kilts next year and see how that works for him. But a, uh, I'm going to be at the Albert Lee Seed House. So if anybody's around the area on December 9th, that's a Saturday, 9.30 in the morning, we're just going to have a uh, discussion. So uh, I welcome anybody that comes with questions or stories or things they've seen or photos or whatever. And the uh, seed house is a wonderful place to find bird stuff, uh, seeds and feeders and that sort of thing. So, again, it's Elberly Seed House, easy to get to right off Highway 13 uh, on the uh the west side of Albert Lee. So I hope to see some of you there. Uh, last week I was talking, uh, We were, we, you and I were talking about uh, snakes and how they survive in the winter. And I had to look up something that I'd written. And, you know, it should be easier to find something I've written. I do all the search things, and sometimes it seems like search can be, it has a, a mean streak where it just says, hey, I know what you're looking for. I just, I don't feel like helping you find it, okay? So just find it on your own. <laughs> so you put in all those search terms, and then finally it, it pops up with a search term that doesn't make any sense. But I'd written about garter snakes. I like garter snakes. They're our most common snake that we see around here, uh, that we see in our yards and things. And we were talking about how they keep, how cold the weather can they survive. And a garter snake, to keep from freezing, they hibernate. They have these hibernaculums, and they go below the frost line. So uh, you find them in a rock crevice, an ant mound. They will go in an ant mound or a tunnel made by a burrowing animal of some kind. And these wintering dens are used by garter snakes year after year. So as long as they can get below that frost line, they're like some mammals. If they get below that, they're going to make it through the winter. So uh, I wish them all well. <laughs> it's, it's not easy being a snake in this world because not everybody likes snakes. And, uh, and winter is one of the things that doesn't like snakes very much. Uh, they have, it's been in all the news about new bird names, and they're doing away with eponyms and honorific t 
titles for birds. But there's something else. There's four-letter codes that when I'm doing a bird count, I use these four-letter codes because it's, it's shorthand. So it's like Greg's shorthand for me for a bird's name. And there are two different sets of these codes that are in use. The first codes were created by the Bird Banding Laboratory for use by bird banders in submitting data and are referred to as banding codes. And, but then there's the Institute for Bird Populations, and they've published a second set of codes. Well, there's a new, new name for the northern goshawk. And the northern goshawk, its banding code was N-O-G-O. So it was pretty easy to remember. N-O-G, no-go. And it has been renamed the American goshawk. So it can't be no-go anymore. Now it's A-G-O-S. Hmm. So you're thinking, well, everything's fine. But there's the American goldfinch, formerly called the beloved AMGO, MGO. And uh, boy, I've written AMGO thousands of times, but they're afraid that it'll be confused now with the American goshawk, the American goldfinch, American goshawk, AMGO, you'd think, even though the American goshawk is AGOS. They still changed the American goldfinch from AMGO to AGOL hmm. to avoid confusion. Will I ever write AGOL? <laughs> oh, boy, it'll be a surprise if I do. I have written AMGO for goldfinches so long that it's just going to be hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And when I'm doing this, as long as I know what I mean... It's fine, because it goes on sheets that will print them out as American goldfinches. Uh, Paul and Val Budd of Albert Lee have a red-breasted nuthatch visiting their feeders. Uh, red-breasted nuthatches, are, they're cute, and they sound like a little toy tin horn, and they're really tame. Uh, they're like our white-breasted nuthatches, only smaller. And again, there's just no other way to describe them other than cute. Uh, Neil Batt of Heartland has uh, saw a cougar on a trail camp not far from Albert Lee. Uh, cougar is just one of the names. It's mountain lion, panther, puma, painter, alion, uh, catamount. I'm probably missing a name, but it has a lot of different names, but all the same cat. Well, you know that the uh, East Kevin, High the East High School is called the Cougars. But what, what before you get there in elementary school or not elementary in middle school you're you're a you're a puma so they change the oh, name cool. same animal just change it going to the the next school so I thought that was kind of interesting that they do that and I think they're actually the pumas in elementary when the kids were in Rosa Parks too. They could be the Leones. There you go, and the next mountain lion. <laughs> the <Yeah>. next time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kevin Stoa uh, stopped to show me some photos of a beautiful white-tail buck, and he wanted me to look at it. Uh, it they're just, they're incredibly beautiful creatures. Uh, Tim Scott, good friend Tim Scott, sent me something from the Washington Post, and it's from Rio de Janeiro. 
And it begins with this. It just it's interesting how it starts. It says their lead is one recent afternoon a smitten blue and yellow macaw grabbed a clawful of carrots and bananas and took flight. He flapped to the top of the aviary at the Rio de Janeiro Zoo and latched onto the netting. Just beyond on the other side of the enclosure was his love, the only wild macaw in a city that hasn't seen a free one of their own kind in two centuries. So it was, it's a love story and a netting that separates these two lovebirds that are uh, blue and yellow macaws. So it's a wonderful article in the Washington Post. Uh, Dina Selby, a friend, she lives in Haines, Alaska, and she also lives in Maryland and, oh gosh, Tennessee. She lives all over creation, so she's enjoying uh uh, early retirement. She said in Haines, she fed pecans to Stellar's Jays, and now they are attacking her house, <laughs> hammering on the windows, demanding pecans. What can she do? Oh. And, of course, I told Dina, feed them more pecans as soon as possible, <laughs> just to make them happy. So, yeah, they, uh, Stellar's Jays are like our Blue Jays here. They're sharp. So they said, that's the lady that gives us pecans, and sometimes she's going to forget. So we need to remind her constantly until she comes up with some more pecans. Aren't pecans kind of expensive, uh, too, it seems to me? Yeah. <laughs> they are. So that's, they are. I mean, could she find a cheaper I alternative, wonder, maybe? <laughs> I wanted to say, Dina, why did you feed yeah. them pecans? Right. It just, it, you're just asking for trouble there, so it's... But uh, yeah, she's uh, nice. She says I'm, I'm just pulling all the blinds and curtains and everything, oh, and pretend I'm not home. Maybe oh. I'll hide behind the sofa until they go away. Oh, funny. And they're probably not going to go away. They uh, they have good memories for food. Uh, John of New Alm sent something. It looked like it was from the Conversation UK. Uh, written by a fellow who's a beekeeper. Oh, no, no. That, I sent you that one. He sent a postcard, so I, I don't want you to confuse those. Oh, you sent. I'm yeah, sorry. I sent you the thing about oh. the beekeepers because I thought that was really interesting. But I do have a postcard from John that I'd like to read that is is uh, for you and me. And this sure. this is regarding our discussion of uh, the squirrel that got washed in the washing machine that was found in our garage. <laughs> and he says, it doesn't matter if your garage door was opened a 10 or 20 times, you create noise and activity, and what do most scared animals do? They hide or stay still. If inside, the chipmunk was close to the open garage door, then he would run back outside. If you are in a cave, would you run by or past a bear or a lion to get out? My guess, it still stands. It ran out of food and water and was inside. It starved and passed away. He says, I think like an animal to figure stuff out sometimes. And that's from John. And, you know, you could be right, John, because I had seen him in there and he, you know, a number of different times. And I thought, well, he'll, he'll get out and tried to chase him out. And he would just go hide under the stuff in the back of the garage because we have a lot of junk in there and stuff so it could be but uh yeah then we're just more careful now that jeff will shake out blankets and things before he washes them i bet he will <laughs> and and william kent william kent kruger i bet he'll be writing a book about this <laughs> about the chipmunk's death and i think it'll be a mystery and yeah. as all his books are it'll be a, a a bestseller sure well what you sent me yeah from the Conversation UK, 
and this fellow was he is a beekeeper. A lot of beekeepers around. They're a quiet bunch for the most part, so you don't know they're uh, keeping bees, but a lot of people do. And it's uh, oh, the the gist of it is for 119 years, a belief that the way honeybees cluster together gives them in the winter gives them kind of an evolutionary insulation and that's been a fundamental belief for beekeeping practice hive design and honeybee study but this fellow studied his bees and he says the temperature outside the hive falls honeybees around the mantle go into a hypothermic shutdown and stop producing heat and the mantle compresses as the bees try to stay above 10 degrees centigrade, which is about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, right around there, I think. And the mantle bees getting closer together increases the thermal conductivity between them and decreases the insulation. And heat will try to move from a warmer region to a colder one. And the rate of heat flow from the core bees, those in the middle, to the mantle bees increases, keeping those bees on the outside of the mantle at hopefully around 10 degrees. And he said something like, think of it as a down jacket. It's the air gap between the feathers that keeps the wearer warm. Honeybee clusters are similar to the action of compressing a down jacket whereby the thermal conductivity eventually increases to that of a dense solid of feathers more like a leather jacket so they are uh, it's a little different than what everybody believes so they're uh, they're just you know they're just trying to survive our winters I uh, kind listener says Al what's the difference between invasive and exotic uh, exotic means uh, non-indigenous to an area, and invasive means that this plant or animal or insect tends to spread prolifically and undesirably or harmfully. Uh, the Japanese beetle comes to mind right away, uh, common buckthorn, garlic mustard, and y'all can name a bunch more that are both exotic and invasive. But there are many inv- exotics that aren't considered invasive. This, uh, soybeans, cattle, oh. apples, ringneck pheasants, they all originate in Asia. Uh, corn is, you know, is, uh, I think a lot of folks consider it a native, but it was probably first cultivated in, in Mexico. Tomatoes came from South America. Tulips were native to Europe. So we have a lot of... Uh, exotics that uh, we like uh, and the honeybee is one of those and of course they've been here since uh, 1600 or something you would think they'd almost have their should be giving a native ID by now but um, so there are exotics and there are invasives and I guess it comes down to we like a lot of exotics but we're not so crazy about if they're invasives and we have a lot of invasives and getting more all the time with stink bugs and all these other things coming through. Uh, The same listener says, uh, I know your favorite bird is a chickadee, but why don't they migrate? Yeah, well, it's because I need them here with me. I I want the chickadees to hang around here. I said, look, you know, I'll put out sunflower seeds, but you have to stay here. Chickadees (laughs) think only wimpy birds fly south. 
So chickadees are non-migratory. They're year-round residents throughout their range. If you think about migration, man, that takes a lot of energy for a bird to migrate. Plus, you got to all the planning you got to do, the mapping and where to stop to eat. You know, it's just a, it's a hassle. So they don't migrate, but they need food to stay home. You can't just say, we're not going, but we don't have any food, but we'll get by. Chickadees are good at finding food, and they work overtime at it, and they cache food to eat later. So they're caching food through the summer and fall here. They're caching food that they will eat this winter. So they have put uh, foodstuffs aside. They've got vittles. They're opportunistic feeders who eat between meals. They eat between meals all the time, snack, snack, snack. And they have this amazing memories. I've talked a lot about how their brains grow when they're uh, hiding food so they can remember where they are. And they wear jackets like, like their mom, like my mom told me and your mom told you, take a jacket. They wear jackets. They fluff up their feathers for insulation. Chickadees are meant to be here. They're meant to be here in the winter, and they figure out how to get what they need. They make do, and they get by, and they always have. They're just incredible little birds that brighten my day whenever I see one. Uh, they're just, I have, there's, and they're another one, like the red-breasted nuthatch. They're cute. They're cute. You just look at a chicken, and, yeah. and you say, oh, my goodness. And there's very few things cuter than a bunch of baby chickadees in a nest box. And they all have their little heads to the outside and their tails to the middle, and they're in a circle in there. And you just, it's one of those things that is, it's both awe producing and awe producing. <laughs> so they're, I, I just love seeing them. And as you can already tell, I could go on forever about chickadees and the, the benefit that they bring to us, and at least to me. I love seeing them. Um, I got a text, uh, do pheasants lay eggs in the nest of other birds? Uh, they do. Oh. Uh, or sometimes those other birds are another pheasant. One hand might lay eggs in the nest of another one. But they are occasional brood parasites. And, and when I say brood parasites, folks think of cowbirds. Yeah. That's what they do. They lay their eggs in another one. But pheasants will lay their eggs in the nests of ducks, which is not a that's not a good plan there to lay your eggs in a duck nest. It's just not going to work out real well for a little baby pheasant. But they will also do lay their eggs in the nests of other gallinaceous birds, and uh, gallinaceous to me is a a chicken-like bird. So it'd be a partridge grouse, and when I say grouse, that'd be like prairie chickens too, uh, quail, like a northern bobwhite, and then also they've been found in wild turkey nests. So uh, pheasants are out there, um, they're working hard to keep the numbers up because uh, it's hard for pheasants in Minnesota. They used uh, cattail marshes to help them survive in winter. That was a place where they went for shelter. A lot of those have gone, uh, particularly in southern Minnesota, because uh, the land raises 
corn really well. And also wet springs are really hard on them as far as nesting and the survival of chicks. So they are out there, I suppose, laying those eggs everywhere they can in an effort to uh, produce that next generation. So, Al, is a partridge in a pear tree, is that a pheasant then? It's a gallinaceous bird, yeah, but it's not uh, not a pheasant. Oh, okay. And the only pheasant we have here is a ringneck pheasant. Now, every time I say that, somebody will send me a photo of a pheasant they see out in the yard or something because there's a lot of pheasants that are raised either by hobbyists or game farms. There's a number of different kinds of pheasants, and those pheasants escape or they're let go. Who knows how they get out and about. They don't seem to ever be able to survive long enough to produce further generations, but there are other pheasants. Uh, They're all so beautiful, and if you go to the county fair and you go into the poultry building, you're very likely to see pheasants of a different kind than our ringneck pheasants. Mm -hmm. But the ringnecks were brought here uh, for the purpose of hunting, so that's why they ended up here. And uh, some years they do really well. I have a one rooster comes into my yard now every day, and he still fluffs up, and then he, uh, he calls, he crows, and then he eats a few seeds under the feeders, and then he wanders off, and he roosts in a tree in my backyard. So I try not to walk by that tree late at night because I know I'm going to scare him out of that tree and I just I then I feel guilty about he's got this nice place all set out and he says oh here comes this moron and I gotta fly away <laughs> now so I I like seeing him he is so beautiful and when we had a good covering of snow oh man they're so pretty against the snow they just uh, jump right out at you but so many things to see out in the world today as there is every day uh we, you might see even see some deer rubs or scrapes and a rub is created when a buck rubs its antlers on saplings or brush small trees even fence posts i see it on fence posts a lot and they peel away the bark or the outer surface of an object and bucks place scent from the forehead or the preorbital glands on the wood to let other bucks know they're around. They just say, watch it, this is this is my territory. And a scrape, of course, is made when the buck paws the ground with its hooves and deposits secretions from its interdigital glands. They just it's the bucks are like one big walking gland. So like teenagers, <laughs> sort of that thing going on. So it's uh it's fun to see them, but oh, guys, you know, be real careful now because they're out chasing one another around, and they aren't going to pay a lot of attention. Uh, I deer at this time of year uh, firmly believe that they have the right away, and uh, you need to just watch out for them because we don't want we don't want anybody to get hurt in these, and we don't even want your car to get hurt. You know, it's just a, a hassle, and you need to have repairs at this extremely busy time of the year where you got uh, stuff to do, eggs to lay, and uh, you need to do things. So uh, just be real careful out there because they're not paying attention. It's up to us to pay attention for them. I've noticed. And speaking again, of paying attention, I've noticed a ton of raccoons 
uh, lying flattened along the side of the roads. Are they on the move or something right now? Because there's so many we've noticed. Yeah, and they're uh, they're trying to get out and get something to eat while uh, oh. the weather w- was a little nice and warm. And it, they used to say if it gets 27 degrees, then the raccoons will be out and about. And boy, I can tell you they are out and about when it's well below 27 degrees. They are not true hibernators. So they spend the winter, what would we say, they hunker down, and uh, but they can't tell time. They don't have a thermometer. I suppose they have an inner thermometer, so they'll emerge every so often to forage for food and maybe drink water. And they want food that's easy to find and lots of it, so that means what our feeders, our garbage... Uh, they, uh, I bet they love the, like uh, the dumpsters in back of a pizza place. I bet they just go crazy. But again, they are not uh, true hibernators. They go into a prolonged state of inactivity, and it'd be called torpor. And they can sleep for probably weeks at a time, and they rely on those accumulated fats for fat stores for food. So they're out there trying to get all that. You know, fat that they can so they can have a nice long nap and sometimes it works well for them and sometimes not so much and i see a lot of those that are run over on the road are young ones that just haven't figured things out yet and uh, they're smart i'm seeing uh, possum prints in the snow and their little their little hands walking in the snow. They have these little pink hands. I call them hands. They're paws, but they look like little hands, and they're just pink as can be. And with this cold weather, like three degrees, they will get, uh, they'll become pinker on their ears and tails. Uh, The weather is, it's hard on possums. Uh, It's another animal that just probably isn't meant to be in Minnesota and uh, other states up here. They just, they don't do well, but they have so many babies that they just keep on going. We always have possums, and I think they're cute. And I know uh, pretty much the whole world disagrees with me on that, but I just I love seeing them. They're cute little guys, and uh, they're not they're slow moving. Their eyesight uh, they should see an eye eye doctor. I think as uh, soon as possible. I scared one once, and he ran off, and he ran right into the shepherd's hook that the uh, feeder was hanging from. So I guess in his excitement, he didn't see it. But they can smell, and they can hear pretty well. They don't seem to be frightened when I talk by them. They just kind of ignore me, I guess. Uh, uh, So they're like family. They just ignore me, so... So it, it's fun to see them. I, uh, they don't do any harm. They eat pretty much everything. And they are famous for eating ticks. And I will say I think the ticks they eat are the ticks that are on their body for the most part. And they pluck them off and eat them. So, mm. And if you can eat wood ticks, you're my buddy. <laughs> I like having you around. But so. do they if eat enough? No other reason. Do they eat enough to make a, a big difference, Al? That's what I always wonder. You know, they do that, but yeah. does it amount to much? Yeah. Well, if they eat one, and that one might be the one with my name on it. So it's, uh, you know, I guess they 
make a little difference. Uh, yeah, there's some years there are so many wood ticks that uh, and deer ticks, sadly, that uh, yeah, you'd have to eat a lot of them. But they will hoover some of them up, and for that, I am most <laughs> thankful. At Thanksgiving, you know, I'm thankful for pretty much everything. It's a it's a wonderful place to live, but. But possums were one of the things I was thankful for, that they're out there doing that job, eating some wood ticks, even if they're just pulling them off their own body. When I pull them off my body, I'm not eating them. They're <laughs> eating them. So I think they should get some sort of uh, merit badge or something just for doing that. And oh. It was, uh, what was the Red Green Show? It was the Possum Lodge. So they had all these things, uh, sayings and stuff that they all had to say about possums before every meeting. So love possums. Possums and chickadees. Boy, those seem to be my two favorite things today. So I, I, um, I, I'm just happy to see both. And I I know they don't need me feeling sorry for them. They're just they're doing what they do. But... You know, when it's, it gets around zero, I look out and I think, oh, my gosh, you know, I wish there was some, you know, if I could invite, the, like, the chickadees in my office here and say, you just, you know, come in and warm up and then go back out. It could be like a, a heating house for them, but they don't need me. Oh, well, before you go, Thanks. I see I just got another, sure. I got just got a text from our friend John. John, he said, okay. if you... If you if you'd have time, you could have the door open with a little trail of food to the door, like E.T. with the trail of M&M's. Live from New Alm, John. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, that I was put... referring to my uh, chipmunk, I think, that is now dead, so it really won't matter now, John. Like uh, Hansel and Gretel yeah. with a trail of breadcrumbs. So, yeah, that'd be... Hey, thanks everybody for sitting on the front porch with Karen and me. Uh, it's always great to have your company. Uh, there was a young woman carrying a clipboard near the multi-user, all-gender restroom at SeaTac Airport. It's a, I'm not certain, but I suspect she was a survey taker asking questions about what people thought of this large restroom that opened this year. It's it's very nice. I, I've i never encountered any survey takers outside a men's restroom at an airport. If I did, I'd assume they were from the Pew Research Center. Sorry about that, but uh, yeah, men, you all raise your hand if you understand. And later I read a newspaper referencing a survey of white-tailed deer, and it surprised me that the deer would respond to a survey, but apparently they did, and it did not involve restrooms. Later, I strolled around Haines, Alaska, late at night, got in late, and Haines is where pedestrians always have the right way, so you're pretty safe walking around. The town was quiet, really quiet, and I wanted to applaud the silence. For a Minnesotan, Haines is a bit out of the ordinary, because there are mountains. I walked alone with my thoughts and with those mountains. It was good for me to do that. Anne Lamott wrote, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, <laughs> including you. <laughs> Unplugging is recharging. I hope you're all able to unplug sometime today and go for a walk and just appreciate the beauty that's around you and the beauty that's within you. 
Thank you all for listening. Remember, Heartland is well worth driving past. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you, Karen. Al, thank you. We'll chat with you next week, all right? I look forward to it. Okay, bye-bye.